And I invite you, if you're physically able, to stand. What we do now, we do not to make us saved, but because we are saved by the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's true. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, he held up bread and he said, this is going to give you a mindful reminder. He said, do not forget to do this. This is my body, which is broken for you. In the same meal, he held up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. Father, I thank you for the witness that has just taken place in this room, that these individuals are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're willing to proclaim that they believe that Jesus not only died, but was resurrected and is coming again. I praise you for this witness. In Jesus' matchless name, all God's people said, amen. Before you take a seat, how about if you turn and say hello to somebody and then find your seat? I'm going to encourage you to go to uh, Genesis chapter 24, if you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, maybe electronically or a hard copy. If you're watching at home, it's a good time to get your Bible out. Um, just a reminder for you this morning, the E2E books are available in the atrium, and this is the third book in the series that we're working through. This one will take you through the next 10 or 11 sections that we're going to do together. And so it starts with Genesis 24, where we're at this morning, and you'll see how the pieces fit together. But I'm breaking it into a two-parter, so there'll be this part, part A this week and part B next week, and you'll understand. So pick these up. They're free. If you're new to New Hope, just feel free to grab them. They're on the tables out there, and it will be a good guide for you throughout the course of the week. Really grateful that Michael was able to step in for me last week and didn't anticipate that this little virus thing was coming quite. Every year, every last week of September since I was in my 20s, on the last week of September, I always pick up some kind of a bronchial laryngitis thing. Don't know why, but now that I'm more than 40, I know that it's a thing that's here to stay. <clears throat> You're so cruel. Um, it, it's been a pattern in my life, and I just know it's coming. It just happened to hit last week on Friday, and it hit me hard, so I'm grateful that Michael was able to step in. Um, I'll do my best not to cough in your ear this morning, so... Maybe, Stefan, if I hold my finger up or something like that, you can mute my mic. So where we're going in Genesis 24 is, is just plain fun. It's the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. It doesn't mean it's going to take us a long time this morning. It, it's just a fun story, and we've hit some really hard, heavy things over the last number of weeks. So I'm glad for this one that's just kind of exceptionally entertaining as we read through and work through it. But it starts out a little bit sad because I need to set it up this way. It starts out with Genesis 23 as being kind of an interlude, and it tells us about Sarah dying. So I'm just going to touch on that for just a moment, and then we'll jump into 24. It says in chapter 23, verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. Verse 2, Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And then it transitions very, very quickly, and we get this window into classic Middle Eastern hospitality. And we begin watching how negotiations take place in these settings because Abraham needs to buy a plot of land for his wife who's passed away and he needs a place to bury her. So we start out in chapter um, 23 with verse 3 and there's this negotiation going on. Abraham spoke to the sons of Heth saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. I'm just going to ask you to indulge me for just a moment as we go into this negotiation that takes place between Abraham and these individuals. 
And what you're going to watch now is this process in negotiations of Abraham bowing before the people, and it's not a religious bowing as though he's worshiping them, but this is all part of the culture, and he's being culturally very relevant, socially relevant to them, understanding how they can conduct business, and he begins speaking to this group of Hittites that are surrounding him. It picks up in verse 7. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with him, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and approach Ephron, the son of Zoar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field, for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. Now, just pause for a moment. Ephron is sitting right there. Okay, he's got this group of people. And he's treating him as though he's distant and he's separate. Please speak to Ephron on my behalf. This is all part of the negotiations. Now, verse 10, now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even of all who went in at the gate of his city, saying, no, my Lord, hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I will give it to you. Bury your dead. Uh, Hold there. This is really disingenuous, okay? So he's essentially setting it up saying, I want you to make me a really good offer, but I'm going to pretend in front of everybody like I'm just going to, no, you just take it. I, I want you to have it. So this is where it picks up, verse 12. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Then Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? (laughs) Okay, now he's just established the price. So bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, Moses throws in, commercial standard. Okay, so he's saying it's just flat, cold, hard silver, right? Now, mind you, he's just paid 10 times the normal price for the property. The normal price of acreage, acreage of, of land at that point in time was four pieces of silver. He's just paid 40 pieces of silver per acre. Now that's just kind of a detail, but I'm very impressed that within these brief summarizations that we've just seen is this clear line of very intentional preparation for the future. See, Abraham's 137 years old. And he's going to live 40 more years, roughly, at this point. He doesn't know that, but his great concern is that he becomes very deliberate about planning for the next generation. In other words, succession planning. And he's being very deliberate about that and following God's will as he lays a strategy for his life. Part of strategic planning at this period of time is that parents would make the arrangements for whom their children would marry. Now, how many of you would be comfortable with your mom and dad choosing your spouse for you? Most of us not, right? We we would wonder whether or not they would make a good decision, especially when we're in our 20s, thinking, no way, I don't want them choosing a bride or a, a husband for me. Well, it seems strange that the longest chapter in Genesis tells us that very detail about how a man got his wife, but it is an incredibly beautiful story. And and if you'll stay with it, you're going to find that it's really worth your attention on many, many levels. It's all about Abraham preparing for a time that he will not personally see. In other words, he's going to be living for more than just himself. So we arrive at Genesis 24 this morning recognizing that Abraham has walked with God for so long now, he knows beyond a doubt that he can trust God with his family, and he can trust God with the generations that will follow after him, especially with the massive amount of wealth that he's acquired and the responsibility to train up his family in the way that they should go to follow God. So here's how it starts in verse 1. Now Abraham was old, advanced and aged, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. 
Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife from my son Isaac. He's telling him to go to Haran, what we know today is modern day right near the border of Syria and, and Turkey, northern Iraq, right in that very region. And we get a pretty odd directive here that we're learning about until you recall the background in Genesis chapter 9. You might remember when we were studying about Noah back in the spring, Noah had an experience with one of his sons. Let me take you back there, Genesis 9, 24. When Noah Noah awoke from his wine, he knew that his youngest son, Ham, had had done what he had done to him. So he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now, in your notes this morning, you're going to find that word Canaan, or in the Hebrew language, Canaan, and that's among the people whom... Abraham is living at this point in time. He's living among the Canaanites, the descendants of Ham, the one who betrayed his own dad, the one who made fun of Noah. Now, Abraham knows it is not God's will that his family would marry within the Canaanites and not mix with them. They've been identified as a people group who have really little regard for God. And according to what Noah proclaimed, they're under a curse. And as you find out through the Bible, they have no sense of shame before God. So apparently Abraham is comfortable doing business with them. He's comfortable buying land from them. And he has them as his friends, but he can't allow his son to marry within their families. That's off limits. Now, by this point in time, Abraham is an extremely wealthy man. If the Forbes 100 existed at this time, Abraham's name would be on the list. So put yourself in the shoes of this servant. This servant works for a man who's very powerful. Yeah, he's the chief steward of the house, and he's been given an assignment from his very powerful master. So he's a bit torn on what to do, because it would be so easy just to stay within this region and choose one of the neighbor girls because they're close by and he wouldn't have to travel. and They're right there and they're very beautiful. So he says, okay, so you're asking me to do this, but what if she won't actually come here? I'll I'll go to where you're asking me to go, but what if she doesn't want to come back? Should I take Isaac with me and let him get married to her there and he can live there? And this is Abraham's response in verse 5. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there." So the steward discovers that he's not going there alone. He's like you. Jesus said you have the Holy Spirit going before you and walking with you. This guy has just discovered that he's not going to Haran alone. God's going to go before him, an invisible partner preparing the way to help him make these very hard decisions. I do wish personally in my own life, I wish this for you, I desire this that we would recall that truth more often in our life, that we would remember that God is the one who's going before us, that He's the one preparing the relationships that we engage with, that He's the one that's shaping the conversations that take place. In other words, God has not left you and I to do this work alone. The, The work of walking with God and being a light to the community for Christ that you live in is not a matter of human ability. God the Spirit actually goes before us. He's the one who's at work and shaping things before you ever get there. Our job is to join Him in His work according to His unique calling on our life. Now, Abraham is willing to acknowledge, you know what, human will could get in the way. The the girl could derail the plans. It may not go the way that I 
believe it could go, but let's just move forward pursuing it, believing that God is going to provide. So he says in verse 9, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath, only do not take my son back there. In other words, it's better that he remain single than marry the wrong person. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now understand, especially if you're new to the Bible, the hand under the thigh thing is a very ancient custom. We'd like to think it wasn't quite as creepy as it is, but uh, we'd like to think that maybe like hand under the thigh meant on the back side of the knee or something. But no, he's, he's getting up in Abraham's business, okay? Because the loins were considered the source of life. And so, this servant is being bound in the deepest part of his being. This is like a one-knee binding. He gets down on one knee, puts his hand under the thigh, gets up in Abraham's business, and commits to this oath. And the oath was binding to the point of death. If you didn't fulfill it, your life was at stake. And that's why Abraham said to him, okay, if she won't come back here, then I free you from that oath. Your life won't be at risk. But go to great lengths, do whatever you have to do. The oath is that solemn because Abraham believes that God will provide just like like he did at Mount Moriah. Why? Because he's acting within the will of God. He's not going outside the will of God. He's acting within God's purposes. So Genesis 24, what you're going to find that it does is it reveals a strategy for those who want God's will in their life, even for those living in 2022 today, both business-wise and personally, the decisions that we make, even to the degree of looking for a spouse, because today many of these same overarching principles still apply. Here's the three things you're going to see coming out of this. First, a person really truly has to want God's will. So they're not rushing forward trying to satisfy some personal craving, but rather they're really truly looking for God's will. And it begins with earnestly praying and seeking His guidance, and that takes time. The next thing you're going to see is the person has to be really willing to obey what God reveals. In other words, willing to walk away if it doesn't match God's purposes, if the character is not a match for God's will. And here's the third thing you're going to see. You got to be really alert. You got to be very alert to what God is doing and watch how He guides and how He leads. Now, what you'll notice is that Abraham doesn't give this chief steward a big plan on how to carry it out. The steward accepts the responsibility and then he puts a plan together. So, verse 10 Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Now, this guy knows women, and he knows fathers. So first thing he does is he goes to the garage, and he chooses ten Land Rovers. (laughs) No, not that kind of Land Rover. The other kind. That kind. Ancient Land Rovers. And we're told that he collects a variety of good things. As you're going to see in a minute, he gathers a lot of jewels together. And so the the variety of good things that pop in my mind as being a dad of daughters is he better be stopping at Cabela's along the way. And he better be bringing some things from Best Buy. And he's bringing lots of good things from his master's house. And he also heads to the family vault. And he pulls out all kinds of jewelry. And he heads off for the city of Nahor. That's Haran in the Bible. Now, it's called the city of Nahor in Genesis 24 because that's where Abraham's brother lives, Nahor, the city where Nahor lives, but it's known as the city of Haran. It's north of Mosul, what we know today as modern Mosul in Iraq. It's in that region, but it's 500 miles away. Now, camels travel about 25 miles a day. The average pedestrian human travels maybe 20 miles a day without being terribly worn out. So these guys have a one-month journey ahead of them. They put together all the provisions necessary. It's adequate for what they need for the trip. And they've got to travel from southern Israel all the way to the Syrian border. Think of it this way. From Lansing to Nashville, Tennessee. That's about the distance that they're going to walk. It's going to take them a month to get there. 
How do you possibly go into a new city that you've never been into and find an acceptable wife for the heir to the Abraham empire? Well, if it's me above all and I'm the chief steward, I'm going to be looking for someone who's got a servant heart, someone who's going to identify themselves as being a person who's willing to step in. And I'd be looking for somebody who's demonstrating initiative. These are the kind of things that he's going to be looking for in character. And a person who's not afraid to be a problem solver. So he develops a strategy. So when they arrive at the city, the daughters of the city are coming out to the well because it's a daily responsibility. There's no indoor faucets. There's no indoor plumbing. They have to go every day to the well. So watch very closely the formula that this chief steward comes up with. Remember, they've been on the road for a month now. Verse 11, he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this... Check this, he's looking for God's will. By this, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Now, this is one of three times that you'll find in the Old Testament that a man shows up at a well and he ends up married. <laughs> happens with Moses, happens with Jacob. If you go to the Middle East, you don't want to get married, just stay away from the wells, okay? It happens continually here. But what we discover in reading this is he wants the very best for his master. How do we know? Because of the phrase, he wants the one whom God selects, the one whom God chooses, not the one that he would select. God's choice is always the best. So someone expecting God to guide the process does not enter into the scenario saying, well, it's all up to me. So in the case of a human relationship, he's not showing up with Cinderella's glass slipper and saying, we're going to have a Miss Israel contest. And I'm going to go around and find the right foot that fits the slipper. That, that's not what's going on. It's not up to him. He's trusting that God would be the one who would choose this person. He could show up and say, I work for a very wealthy foreign investor, and his son is handsome, and he's the heir to the empire. Who wants to sign up for that? But that's not what he chooses to do. Let's see how his method is very, very different in using a design that God would help him select the right person. So while his heavily loaded caravan arrives first, and they're very thirsty, the first thing you find him doing is making them kneel. So immediately he lines up the camels, and they play a really big role in this story, and he begins by seeking the will and the guidance of God. So I want you to look in depth at the specificity of the prayer. It's not a long prayer, because God's not impressed with lots of words, is he, church? God's not impressed with repetition. He's not impressed with lots of words when we pray. He's impressed with the heart. Jesus spoke to this issue. Let me remind you of that, Matthew 6, 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So in other words, no word salad prayers. Just be specific and get right to the point. You'd be surprised. Some of my prayers are so br brief, it would surprise you. Sometimes my family is waiting for me to keep going, and I'm done and looking up and saying, I'm, I'm ready to move on. We find this guy standing at the well saying, here I am, God, and the daughters of the city are coming out, and I'm here at the right moment in time. In other words, God, you see me. I'm here. I've, I've put the effort forward. Will you bless it? And he spells out very specifically what he needs to hear from the Lord. It says this in verse 14, may she be the one whom you have appointed. So he's in the right city, he's in a great spot to observe, but how can he possibly judge the most important quality? What's the most important quality in a spouse? Godly character. How can you determine that? 
You could watch somebody for months and not have the true character revealed. Well, in reality, the plan that he's come up with is a test of character, but it's combined with a total trust for God's leading. Now, mind you, I know you know this, camels are very, very thirsty. They require a lot of water. A lot of people think they store the water in their humps. That's not where they store it. They store it in their vascular system, in their bloodstream. The humps is where they store fat. So if they're low on food, the, the humps actually sag. But they need lots of water to keep that big body moving. And they can consume so much water. They can consume 50 gallons in three minutes' time. And they hold it all with inside their body system. So to give this man a drink is one thing. To provide water for the compatriots that are with him, his, his co-workers that come alongside as guards, that's another thing entirely. But to give 10 camels the water that they need and fill them up so that they're satisfied. 10 camels, they each can consume 50 gallons of water and they can do it in three minutes time. He's looking for somebody who's willing to provide 500 gallons of water. But his plan is not to ask her to do that. His plan is to ask just for a cup of water, only for himself. Uh, mind you, any woman coming to the well can easily meet that basic requirement. Hospitality is, is the rule of the Middle East. Anybody's going to offer him a cup of water. That'd be common courtesy. But he's not looking for common. He wants exceptional. Anyone willing to go the extra mile is going to be of extraordinary character. Because who's going to be willing to pull up 500 gallons of water from the bottom of the well for a stranger? So his request actually is reflecting a deep insight into the human nature and at the same time a total dependence upon God because he knows that God himself would have laid the groundwork even beginning with the birth of whomever this girl is going to be. God is the one who's gone before him. How often, church, do we wring our hands out of anxiety? wondering what God's going to do, full of frustration, trying to figure out what is God up to, when all along He's been preparing a path. But notice that God's plan isn't revealed until this man goes before God in prayer. And make no mistake, what he's asking for is a huge responsibility. From my days in aviation, I know exactly what water weighs because we had to be aware of water getting to the gas tanks of the airplanes. 8.3 gallons per pound. Weighs more than gasoline. 8.3 gallons per pound times 10 camels translates to a whole lot of work. So let's translate that to the weight. 500 gallons of water, 8 pounds per gallon, roughly 4,000 pounds of water. So put this in context. How about if you picture yourself going to your local watering hole? Let's call your local watering hole Starbucks. Let's say you go into your local watering hall called Starbucks and you walk up to the first person you meet and ask them to let down their Starbucks cup and bring up 4,000 pounds of water for you. How do you think they're gonna to react to you? How will they look at you? Like you're from another planet, no doubt. So she's got to get all of this out of the well and bring it up into the jar, dump it into the trough, and then repeat the process and fill it over and over for 10 camels. Mind you, the wells were always set down at the bottom of a ravine or deep in a pit. So she's descending the steps, bringing the water back up over and over and over again. And women typically drew the water in the morning and in the evening because that's the cooler part of the day. And that's when they did this household task. You still see it in large parts of the world today. In Ethiopia, they still do this very same thing. So even before he finishes praying, the women are coming out of the city. And the words are still on his lips. And one particular young woman arrives. Verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. 
She said, drink, my Lord, and she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now, while her beauty may satisfy the standards of lesser men, it's the character that he's concerned with. So the test is allowed to run its course. So far, she's just another pretty face, one among many who are coming out to the well. Young ladies that are here today, can I, can I just encourage you this way? If, if you're in a single place in your life, the man who's only concerned with your outward appearance is not worthy of you. Men who are only concerned with your beauty, they don't measure up. If he wants to win your heart, that must be his focus. Your heart has to be his first priority. Uh, typically, the, the many women show up at the same time, and they're all drawing from the same well, and they're all trying to get back to their household, and they're all trying to serve their family. So you could understand if she responds, <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Get your own water. I've got a family to get back to. I've got to take care of their needs. But verse 19 comes along. Now, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they finish drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well, and she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. Did you get that? She ran back to the well. Why run? Because the camels are really thirsty and they're drinking 50 gallons in three minutes. So she's really, really got to hustle. And he's just gazing at her in silence. And you might think it's because he's amazed at how hard that she's working until you read the next part. Specifically, we're told he's gazing at her to learn whether or not the Lord has blessed. Is this truly her Lord? He's not rushing to judgment. Is this really the one? See, he could make a snap judgment, but he just watches patiently, discerning, being very intentional about making sure it's the right decision. Go with me to the next verse, 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing 10 shekels in gold and said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Pause there for a moment. Nahor is Abraham's brother. God has led him right to the very one that he needs. And in that moment, as soon as she says that, he knows, I'm sure his eyes went wide open. And she keeps going. Again, she said to him, we have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. One shekel weighs four-tenths of an ounce in biblical measurement units. Four-tenths of an ounce for that ring, that's in today's common market price for gold, that's an $800 nose ring. And the bracelets that he's just given to her, that's $6,000 in gold bracelets that he's put on her wrist for bringing the water up. Do you think that caught her attention? Absolutely. Abraham's servant acknowledges God is the one who's prepared the way down to the most minute detail. And so he had to respond. So verse 26, the man bowed, then the man bowed low and worshiped the Lord. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Do you recall what Abraham said to the servant before he ever left? He's still in Israel. He's in the Negev. And Abraham says, God's going to go before you. He's going to prepare the way. Do not get a girl for my son from this region where I live. God's going to go in front of you. So as a result, his first stop is his only stop. He doesn't have to look any further. This is the one. She's gracious, she's hospitable, she's kind. She must have been incredibly athletic, like a marathoner, to be able to do all this running. You've got this dry, arid land in the middle of the desert, and she's running back and forth, hauling these jugs of water. And she's humble. Verse 27 picks up where he left off. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, 
The Lord has guided me in the way of the house to the house of my master's brothers. Keep going. Then the girl ran and told her mother's household about all these things. So she's running again. She's all excited. Like, I got news to tell. And I don't know how she's doing that after filling up 10 camels and taking care of all of his entourage. And they all have to eat and sleep. And then I don't think I mentioned yet that Rebecca has a brother. And Rebecca's brother's name is Laban, and we find him next, and he's running outside. So this is a running family. Verse 29, now Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran outside to beat the man at the spring. When he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist, and when he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister saying, this is what the man said to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside since I've prepared the house and a place for the camels? So the man entered the house. Then Laban unloaded the camels and he gave straw and feed to the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Now, while Laban at first comes across as kind and generous and very genuine, Rebekah's brother Laban is a piece of work, as you're going to find out as you get through the story. He knows who the true God is, but he's an idolater, and he does not worship the true God, and he's a conniving manipulator. And you can be sure that when he's unloading the camels, he's checking out the luggage to see what's inside, because that's just the kind of guy that he is. But this gracious nature seems to run through the entire family. The, the parents must have really modeled humility and grace and hospitality. But as of yet, they don't seem to know why the stranger is there. They seem to know who he's from, but we're not told how. He's about to tell them that their relative, Abraham, has been exceedingly successful, and he's become great in the land, and he's abounding in wealth. Verse 33, but when food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business, and he said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age and he has given him all that he has. So nothing's going to interfere with his job, not even the simplest task, not even eating a meal. And he does a complete retelling of the entire journey and everything associated with it. We're going to skip right on past that and go with me down to verse 45. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder and went down to the spring and drew. And I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will water your camels also. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. Then I asked her and said, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. And I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrist, which, as you're about to find out, is just the door prize. This thousands of dollars that she's just received in jewelry is a statement to her. While we still do the bracelet thing, and many individuals wear bracelets, the, the nose ring is not quite as common, it's becoming a little bit more common, but the nose ring was a customary gesture to indicate beauty. And when someone was given a nose ring, or when they wore the nose ring, it was a declaration that somebody really valued them, but there was no piercing involved, it, it was just a clip-on ring. And if you parents have daughters that want nose rings, just don't let them read chapter 24, okay? Go with me to verse 48. And I bowed low and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Verse 49. So now, if you're going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, let me know that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Putting it in modern context, he's saying, y'all are family. Can we get this thing done? Can, can we do this? Because obviously, I need to know, is it deal or no deal? Because I'm going to go look somewhere else. Verse 50, then Laban, that's her brother, and Bethuel, that's her dad, replied, the matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. 51, 
Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So for the chief steward's part, he's been doing all the work. He's the one who took the vow. He's the one that's traveled for a month. He's the one that came up with the plan. He's the one that's carried all the jewels in. Yet, even a pagan like Laban, who is an idol worshiper, can clearly see and tell when God is at work. He can see it. It's so obvious. He can't ignore it. So verse 52, when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. And with that, there's the customary Middle Eastern bring forth the jewels because they just entered into a contract. So verse 53, the servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And this is like Christmas morning for Rebekah and her entire family. Now, I have to say as a dad, the more I study these prearranged marriage things, I'm pretty much a fan of them. <laughs> I'm not afraid to post these verses on the pillar of my house and say, there's a price that's gonna be paid. You see, the, this detail, we need to understand this. When he says, bring out the cash and the gifts, he's essentially recognizing culturally that in those days when you lost your daughter or your son, you lost not only a member of your family who was intimate and precious to you, you've also lost a worker, someone who brought life within the household. So they needed to compensate them for the, the bride price. And so the members of the family were made whole, if you will, because they made a major contribution to the family. And so that's why he says, bring out the jewels and bring out the gold. Verse 54, then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the girl stay with us a few days, say 10. Afterwards, she may go. He said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Thus they sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. So if you read a little bit further, you'll find she has lots of female escorts that go with her, her handmaids as well. So after all the careful attention this chief steward has given to this project, he's not going to blow it now. His response to them when they say, why don't you wait 10 more days, is God is clearly in charge of this. He's the one that's prospered my way. He's the one that's brought it about immediately. He moved things along quickly. I have to go. So verse 60, they blessed Rebecca and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. If you were here two weeks ago, that should ring very familiar with you. That's the same blessing that God gave to Abraham. To possess the gate means to conquer the enemy. Rebecca did indeed become the mother of thousands and tens of thousands, and we know millions upon millions, but without her family even knowing what they were doing, this blessing that they've just given her is in God's plan the exact same blessing that was given to Abraham. Remember chapter 22, verse 17? Look at this. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. This is God speaking to Abraham. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. When they call for myriads upon myriads of thousands for Rebekah, they're calling for boundless numbers of God's people, which you are today boundless numbers of God's people who will come to God because of God's plan and his outworking of the, the line that will come through Rebekah. But when they speak of possessing the gate, they're calling for the ultimate triumph. And the ultimate picture of possessing the gate is when Jesus our Lord storms the gates of hell, when he defeated sin and death 
Be reminded of this church from Matthew 16, 18, Jesus' own words. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's Jesus saying, I'm taking the gates. I'm taking the gates because I am the ultimate victor. Now dive with me back into the story to finish at verse 61. Then Rebekah arose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. And they've got a whole month before them on this open trail. Now fast forward. Isaac enters the scene at the same time the servant and Rebekah are arriving with the camels, just as he's bringing the young woman. And they both lift up their eyes at the same time, and they see each other in a distance. This story was made for Hollywood, I'm telling you. This is just an incredible love story coming out here. Verse 62, now Isaac had come from going to Bir Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. Now understand, it's very customary at this period of time for women to not be seen riding by the men that they're betrothed to. But the English translation is really kind to Rebekah when it says she dismounted the camel. The Hebrew word actually means she fell off the camel. Right. So she sees Isaac, she falls, she gets up and dusts herself off. There's an entrance for you, right? And so the very next thing that she can do is she turns to the servant. She says in verse 65, she said to the servant, who's that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, he is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. <laughs> this is one of the funnier parts of the story. Before the servant can do anything else, the chief steward just has to report again. So he starts all the way back at the beginning. And he does this thing like, Abraham came to me and he made me put my hand up inside his thigh. Then I showed up with the well and the camels. And then she comes out and, and all the time Isaac's going, yeah, right, totally cool. Like, what is she like? And he's just listening to the story being repeated to him. My wife really dislikes unfinished endings in a movie. And she doesn't want to have to imagine what happened at the end. Well, you don't have to imagine all of it, but you get some detail here that we find in verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Check this. This is the part you don't have to imagine. Sarah's been dead for three years now. Her tent, her dwelling place, has stood as a reminder to the community, to the family, all the workers within Abraham's empire, that she's gone. And it stands empty, waiting for another woman of the household to occupy that space. So the story doesn't say that Rebecca lifted her veil and Isaac flipped because she's so gorgeous. It doesn't give us any great detail like that. It simply says this, Isaac loved her, and that's enough. There's much more to her life story, as you'll see next week especially. But for now, the mission has been accomplished, and, and Rebecca is going to walk in the steps of her great-uncle Abraham. She, like he, has been called by God to leave her homeland and her relatives and go to this new promised land. And so that's why it ends with Isaac was comforted after his mother's death, meaning there is once again a woman of noble character occupying his mother's tent in his life. So this is the part you do have to imagine. Can you not just imagine the servant standing by, grinning from ear to ear, watching all this? I'm thinking he's just so full of joy. that He got to be part of this. Here's what I personally take away from this story. I personally come away from this being reminded that God, our God, is concerned with even the smallest details of our life, even what we would consider to be the most minute. When we are intentional, in finding his purposes, he will reveal it. 
And that's true for those who put their faith in him through a relationship with Jesus, because it all begins there. That's where it starts at. So let me edify you if you're a church person. If you're a person who has a relationship with Jesus, you're in relationship with him because you recognize him as your Lord and Savior. Know this. God goes ahead of you, and he's preparing the events in your life. He's shaping those events, even in the mundane areas. Hear me out on this. We've seen today that the will of God was discerned through prayer. We found that the will of God is discerned through seeking wisdom. There's no spectacular lightning bolts. He just came up with a strategy, and he was watching to see where God was at work. Here's the third one. The will of God is discerned through humility because God really honors humility. So we find that the will of God is discerned through humility because it was being found in a hard worker who was just doing a regular daily task of hauling water. And that revealed the character of that person. And that revealed the will of God. So I would ask you as you go out the door this morning, are you personally at a place right now where there's some big decision in your life or maybe even a small decision where you're seeking the will of God? I would encourage you to do this. Find his answer before you proceed. Seek God's will in both your personal and your professional life, asking him to lead you. There's, because of this, there's this one big final takeaway I want you to carry out with you this morning. Most church people know by heart the Lord's Prayer. Disciples came to Jesus, said, teach us how to pray. Jesus' response was, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, And a lot of people miss that next part. Your will be done. The words of the Lord's Prayer are not some magical open sesame type formula. Because it's not the structure of the sentence. It's the attitude of the heart. And God watches for where the heart's at. So this servant's heart was, God, I want your choice. I want your will. And the best example of that strategy is modeled by Jesus when he himself said, Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So we we see it also exemplified in that servant when he says, may she be the one whom you have appointed God. And he was so sincere about it, he wouldn't even eat until God's will was revealed. See, church, that's what it looks like to chase after God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. And when you do, he is faithful and rewards those who earnestly seek him. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for these stories that come alive because of the work of your Holy Spirit. You're the one who guides us and leads us and shows us truth through your word. I pray that it would resonate with us this week as we take on our responsibilities and we, we seek to walk before a world that's watching us and live out our faith in such a way that it becomes contagious. So God, let us be known as people who are really chasing after your will and wanting your purposes in our life. We pray for this in the majestic name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope. Yes, thank you.